Hello, wonderful women of Women in the Word. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm so glad to be here with you today, and welcome to the Women at the West Campus. Spring is here. Yay! (laughs) We have all been traveling together through the book of Acts. And we've been through a lot of countries and a lot of cities at this point. We're about to look at some more cities today as we join Paul on his third mission trip. And I think we've all been learning what an amazing leader Paul is. And I think the best way to describe his leadership is is by using the term servant leader. And uh, that's who he is. And I think Paul represents God's idea of true leadership. And how do we know what God's idea of true leadership is? We look at God's son, the greatest servant leader of all. Look what Philippians says on your verse sheet. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know Jesus called himself a servant. Look at your next couple verses. Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the book of Luke, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. And then we need to realize Paul also called himself a servant. Look at 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so because of that, I think when we look at Paul's life and we see what he did and how much it mirrored the work of Christ. I think when Paul was going around strengthening and encouraging the disciples, he would think about Jesus and the servant he was. Maybe he'd picture when Jesus washed the feet um, in, at the Last Supper of his disciples. And when Paul performed signs and miracles to authenticate the gospel, I think he thought about Jesus and how he did that. Maybe he thought about how Jesus miraculously met him on the road to Damascus and changed his life forever. I think when Paul was traveling far and wide to bring people into the kingdom, he thought about Jesus and his great outreach. And maybe he thought about the Samaritan woman and how Jesus reached out to her. And then through the suffering that Paul endured physically and emotionally at the hands of everyone that opposed his message, I believe Paul thought about his Savior. The rejection, the ridicule, the beatings he endured that led him to the cross. Jesus Christ was the greatest servant leader of all, and Paul was a lot like his Savior. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe by the call of mercy? By thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Not for weight of glory, not for crown and palm. Enter we the army and raise the warrior psalm. But for love that claims us. 
Lives for whom he died. He whom Jesus nameth must be on his side. By love constraining, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. We are thine. Joyfully enlisting, by thy grace divine, always on the Lord's side, Savior, always thine. God calls us to be his servant and to lead others. In this story of Acts today, we can glean some of the characteristics of what a servant leader looks like. And I just want to say this, don't everybody zone out because I can do this and think, I'm not leading anywhere right now. It doesn't really apply to me. I'm going to say every one of you in here is a leader in some way or another. You've got kids, you're a leader. You're doing anything in the community, you're a leader. You're doing anything at the church, you're a leader. In the schools, in your workplace, whatever, we're leaders. And if we want to look like Jesus when we lead, we have to be a servant leader. First thing we realize from Paul is a servant leader looks outward. Paul wasn't self-focused. Paul was other-focused. His eyes were always looking outward. Who can I tell? Who can I help? Who can I encourage? Who can I train? I think Paul looked out into all the world hoping everyone would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think he was doing a pretty great job of making that happen. It's amazing. It's amazing to think of what was happening. The world was becoming a better place because of the mission trips of Paul and others. The truth of Jesus was spreading. Where there's truth, there's change, change lives, change priorities, change relationships. But here's the great thing about Paul. Even though his vision was out there looking into the entire world, he had this global view. It didn't mean that he didn't know or notice the individual faces of the people that were in the churches that he was planting all over. I think he focused on the individuals. You know how we know that? Do you ever notice the beginnings and the endings of most of Paul's letters? What's he doing? Listing everybody he knew in the churches, women and men, and what they meant in his life. Lists of them. Sometimes just take the time to read all those and be encouraged that he knew the people. He wasn't so visionary that he didn't care individually. On his third mission trip, I think Paul added to his list greatly of the people that he loved. So we're going to look at when he left Antioch again, he's going to encourage the disciples, and this is going to happen first in Galatia and Phrygia. He gave focused attention and time to all the churches to strengthen their faith. Look at Acts 18, 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So if we look at the map of his third missionary trip, we can see where Paul started in Antioch. Look at all the places he went. Unbelievable. These are the places, but in those places are the people who Paul loved and was leading them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when he visited those churches that they planted earlier, don't you know he was busy? They probably kept a little list. Hey, let's ask Paul this when he comes. Hey, what, what about that? Add that to the list. You know, Paul would arrive. They wanted to know more things about Jesus. 
They had issues in the church that needed to be addressed. They had scriptures they didn't understand. They had heartaches to cry over. They had joys they wanted to share with Paul. They had victories. And it was important for Paul to be there and meet those needs. So as a leader, we see Paul like this. He's looking at the whole world to establish the church. Then he's looking at the individual churches. Then he's looking at the individuals in the church. And then he's taking the time to develop those individuals to go out into the world, and plant and help other churches. Paul developed disciples who would train others for the spread of the gospel. You know, a lot of our kids in here, my kids and my friends' kids that grew up in this church, you know, nothing touches our heart more than kids' camp to come along, and we see our grown, we would see our grown kids with the little kids, teaching them about Jesus, training them, it's so awesome. And then as our kids got older, they became interns with the teens. And my kids got to do that too. And I was thinking the other day about my son Tyler. He was interning with some teens when he was in college um, for the summer. And we have this window in our house. Our stairs come down, and there's a wall there into the living room, but there's a hole cut out of it so you can see up the stairs. And when my son was growing up, he used to crouch down onto that ledge of that open window and spring out into the living room, which was like from here to the stairs. So we had to do a really good push to get across, and I would let him put couch cushions and pillows so he'd have something soft to fall onto. Well, little did I know that um, he would think that's a great thing to do as an intern with the sixth grade students. I was not home the day they decided that, and later on saw these Polaroid pictures of some of the sixth graders in our church flying in the air <laughs> across my living room. That was my son's wonderful training <laughs> of these kids. I'm glad to say I think they all survived, and they love the Lord because people like Tyler and other, other older kids. Young students in college took the time to train and develop them in the word. Well, we've got that in Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, uh, we talked about them last week. Paul met them, stayed with them in Corinth. They were both tent makers. I don't think they really talked tents. I think that they talked Christ. They may have been Christians from the church in Rome when they met Paul. They had a lot to learn from Paul. And I'm sure that they enjoyed being with him immensely, his friendship, his training in the Lord. And we see the fruit of these training in some verses we're going to look at. This story that we're going to read about Aquila uh, and Priscilla actually took place after Paul left Ephesus. Remember last week at the, um, his second missionary journey, and he said, if God wills, I'll be back. He does go back. It's a year later in chapter 19. And here's what we need to realize when we read these next two stories. Think about the transition that the loyal Jewish people had to make in their heart and mind with this gospel of Jesus Christ. And even if they wanted to do it and they were trying, it was so hard for them to set down the old covenant and pick up the new. And so you had people that were really clinging to the ceremonial religious things of the Old Testament and making that almost 
superior to Jesus Christ himself. And I think that's what was happening here in these next stories. So let's look at chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, some important facts about Apollos. He was from Alexandria. That's Egypt. That was a center of philosophy and learning. So Apollos was uh, impressive. He was learned. He had formal schooling credentials. He had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, which would mean the Old Testament. And when it says he was instructed in the way of the Lord, that was an Old Testament term used to mean you were instructed in the ways of Jehovah God. You were instructed in the ways of the Old Testament and you tried to follow it. That would be your way of the Lord. And so even though Apollos was teaching about Jesus, he was accurate, but he was deficient. He didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that when one accepts Christ's sacrifice for us, we're sealed with the Spirit of God. And the importance of that, how it symbolizes union with Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The importance of that baptism. Apollos only knew John's baptism which was what the Old Testament was always saying, repent, repent, repent. But it was pointing to a way to repent. It was pointing to Jesus Christ, and Apollos didn't see that. He knew strongly the first person of the Trinity, the Father. He knew somewhat the second person of the Trinity, the Son, but he knew nothing about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now we see that he meets with Aquila and Priscilla, and that view changed in his heart. No longer did Apollos know Jesus as a figure in history, but came to know him as a living presence and the living power that comes along with our belief through the Holy Spirit. And when he came away with that deeper understanding of Christ's sacrifice and his superiority over the old covenant, Apollo's faith was complete. And we read how he carried the good news to the Jews, showing through scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it's interesting that Paul's about to meet people just like Apollos, 12 men. And a lot of people think they were probably followers of Apollos. That Apollos had been in Ephesus during that year in between. They may have been followers of Apollos. Uh, they would have been men who had never heard of Pentecost. Remember, we studied that. When the Spirit came and the tongues of fire came over the people in the room. Because these men had placed their trust in the baptism of John, but not in the work of Christ on the cross. But they are about to experience their own mini-Pentecost. 
That's how gracious God is. Look at 19 verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Christ. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Both these stories, we can learn some wonderful things about training disciples for Christ. And the first one is, we have to care about the people and care about their confusion. I love that Aquila and Priscilla didn't just stand up and rebuke Apollos in public. Sometimes in America, I think we get the wrong view of what a leader is. We think they're aggressive and abrasive and firm and walk away. That's not servant leadership. Aquila and Priscilla were servant leaders, so they listened. They didn't walk away critical. They didn't walk away feeling superior. They didn't walk away rebuking him. That's the point. They didn't walk away at all. They cared about him. And so in our other Bible translations, we realize that they um, invited him into their home. What an awesome thing. So they moved on. They took the time to respectfully instruct him. And so did Paul. Aquila and Priscilla showed respect by not humiliating Apollos in public. And Paul took the time, if you notice, to ask these 12 men many questions to get them to come to a deeper understanding of what they really needed to know. We know that Aquila and Priscilla and Paul's efforts were rewarded. Later, Paul would acknowledge Apollos as a fellow worker in God's field. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians on your verse sheet. 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, this is Paul speaking, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I thought it was interesting. Martin Luther thinks maybe Apollos is the author of the book of Hebrews. Sort of makes sense because he had such a great grasp of the Old Testament. At the time of the Reformation in England in 1500, there was a man that was a lot like Apollos. His name was Hugh Latimer. He was a bishop, very learned, very powerful speaker, very eloquent, great teacher. He knew Jesus really well here. But he didn't understand the idea of here. And so he really agreed with the mainstream church that the way to heaven was good works. So enter a little monk who was known as Little Bilney. A little guy, very little education, not esteemed, pretty much invisible, but he loved Jesus. He understood what it meant to confess your sin, to receive his sacrifice, and in faith come to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ. But he knew, Hugh Latimer didn't know that, and he cared about him. 
And he began to pray for him. And he also knew God would use a Hugh Latimer if he came to understand the living Christ. And so he began to pray. And little Bilney was waiting to see what God would do. And one day he realized, you know, when you're in the church and you say to a bishop, I want to confess, they have to take you into the confessional. So we waited for a Sunday when Hugh Latimer was in his church, and he tugged on his sleeve to get him to pay attention to him, and he said, you know, I've got something to confess. And Hugh Latimer said, come on, took him in the confessional, sat down, and little Bilney confessed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Hugh Latimer heard it for the first time in his life and came to Christ. And it it is true. God used him in England in a very mighty way. These were his last words. He ended up, um, Hugh Latimer, being burned at the stake because the church didn't appreciate his new theology of Jesus Christ. And they burned him with some other pastor at his side. And he said these words, Be brave and play the man. We shall this day... By the grace of God, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And there is still a flicker of a candle in England, and God is doing a work in that country. When others' needs are more important than our own needs, we are a servant leader. And I thought about how it's so easy for us to feel... Like we don't always have something to contribute. We may feel little, like uh, little Bilney. That's a great place to be. To be humble and to pray and ask God to do the work and to use you. He can do a lot with the heart who puts others before himself. Then a servant leader looks inward. Paul focused on issues of the heart. Paul has entered Ephesus. He was there briefly on his second mission trip. This time he's come back. He's going to stay between two and three years. And this is what he would do. Every day he would teach and discuss about the way in a lecture hall. And the way was a term that the devoted Christians would use. And here's what it meant. Christianity was the way of all ways that Christ's disciples were to live. So the way is how are we supposed to live as Christians. And here's what most people believe Paul's day looked like. He would get up at sunrise and he would go out and begin stretching leather and working on his tents. He would do that until 11 a.m. Then he would head to Tyrannus' lecture hall. Probably Paul rented this hall and he would exchange his leather work for lecture work. And he would speak. And he knew secular people can be reached for Christ in a secular place, sometimes a lot easier than any place else. And that was true. Tyrannus, they think, was a philosopher and an educator who taught, but he taught in the cool hours of the morning until 11. Then at 11, he headed for lunch and his siesta like the rest of Ephesus. In fact, I read that at 1 p.m. in the afternoon in Ephesus, there were much more people asleep than at 1 a.m. In the town of Ephesus. They got up at sunrise, took a long nap in the afternoon. But Paul didn't. He seized that opportunity, went into that hall, even if it was hot, and taught. 
and many residents of Ephesus and many travelers chose to forego their afternoon siesta to come and hear this man they'd been hearing about named Paul, and they listened to him, and they loved him, and he loved them, and they became converted, and if they were travelers, they went on their merry way taking the truth of the gospel back to their hometowns, and that is how God spread the word in Asia. If you add up the hours of Paul's daily teaching, six days a week for two years in that lecture hall, it amounts to him arguing for the gospel 3,120 hours. Fervent, passionate, persistent. Look at verse 10 in chapter 19. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I want us to look at Ephesus real quickly. Great. Um, I've had the privilege of being there, and I just have to tell you the description of Ephesus, even This many years later, with it in ruins, is still absolutely magnificent. It's an incredible place. This is uh, the, the library on the left. Yes, they had a library. Ephesus was streets of marble and colonnades of marble everywhere you looked. It was a port city. Let's look at the next picture. Had lots of trade. This would have been a street where they would do trade um, alongside that. Uh, lots of business. There was a sea. You knew that. There's, it's a port city. But the sea entrance now is silted over. And so there's miles between the city of Ephesus and the sea now. And so that was sort of the demise of Ephesus when that began to happen. It really wasn't long after Paul's days that that did happen. Um, it was a largely populated town. It had a large theater. Let's look at the next one. This is a frontal picture, I think, of the library again. Um, And let's go on to see the theater. Twenty-five thousand people could sit in the theater in Ephesus. And isn't it magnificent that you can still pretty much see that? Uh, And we can leave that up because I'm going to be talking about it in a minute. Ephesus was known for its magnificent temple of Diana or Artemis which is known as one of the it was known as one of the wonders of the ancient world it was as long as a football field it was also uh, known for cult prostitution superstitious religion and the cult of artemis seems to have its beginnings you noticed in your readings about what fell from heaven You know, it was pretty common to have little meteor parts fall from heaven. They think that a meteor part fell in this town, and they immediately picked it up and called it a goddess and built a giant football-sized temple around it and began to worship this goddess of fertility. Ephesus was a hotbed of oriental magic, superstitions, occult practices. Ephesus needed Paul. And because of Paul's bold teaching there, new churches were planted throughout the entire province of Asia, all along the west coast of modern-day Turkey today. And so as we envision Paul moving in and out of the marble streets of Ephesus, teaching, meeting, sharing the gospel, what was his main concern? Now think of the old Paul when he was known as Saul, 
His main concern in a place like Ephesus would have been to get the Jews there to behave. For them to follow the law of God, steer clear of the idol worshipers. But now Paul has Christ burning in his heart. His main concern is to change hearts for the living Jesus Christ. He goes to Jews. He goes to the Gentiles. He goes to magicians. He goes to the the prostitutes. He goes to all the people, people involved in the occult, which they think was probably everyone in the city in some way or another. That's Paul's ministry. And God is using Paul in miraculous ways to authenticate his message. You read about Paul's handkerchiefs and his apron. Okay, those would have been, it's kind of gross. Those were his like sweat rags. He would tie his head working out in the sun on those tents and that sweat rag. That's what that was. His apron was whatever he tied around his waist to gird himself while he was doing his work. Those were being used by God to heal the sick and the demon possessed. And all of that was to demonstrate the power of God. They didn't know there was one God. The power of the one living God was authenticated in these kind of miracles and Paul was preaching them in the name of Jesus Christ. Even Luke described that miracle as extraordinary, meaning not typical, meaning like in Ephesus, there were some very special ways God used Paul. I think God was accommodating this um, magical mindset of these Ephesians at that time. Now, those kind of things would also capture the attention of those who were always wanting to demonstrate their own power, even power over darkness. So Jewish exorcists began to try to use the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. And they were using it as sort of a magic spell. That's all they knew. And so when they would um, try to do magical things, they could use Jesus' name because it seemed to work well for Paul. So let's grab his magic spell. One unfortunate day, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva decided to use that magic spell and exorcise um, some demons from a man. Now, most people believe Sceva wasn't really probably a high priest. There's two options. He may have been in the lineage of a high priestly family. But the other opportunity that some people think he was using that to impress others. So he just gave himself a title. Uh, So here's his seven sons that are going to try to exercise this demon. And the sad reality is to make us realize even the Jewish population were mixed up in things that were not from God. They were dark things. So the sons attempt to free this demon-possessed man with these words, I command you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. The demon immediately answers, and I think he had a really scary voice. I think his voice alone probably terrified them, and he said this to them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And they fly back, and here's seven of them, and one man beats them up, beats them bloody, and rips all their clothes off. They escape for their life, running out the door, naked and bleeding. The little magic spell didn't work because they didn't know Jesus. And they didn't know who he was. 
This reminded me when I was in high school, my sister and I read the story, and every once in a while, if she would say something like, do you know Susie? And I would say, Jesus, I know. <laughs> Susie, I've heard of, but who are you? And then we beat each other up. <laughs> and then she'd do it to me later on. These guys were charlatans. They had no power over this demon. But the demon definitely knew who Jesus was. And the name of Paul was beginning to be shared in the demonic world. Jesus, I know, translates to I know him by experience and interaction. Paul, I recognize, means I know about. I know about him. But he didn't know them. Because they didn't know Jesus. And this story made it into the streets of Ephesus. And it's amazing how God used it to just convict the people that were in these occultic practices involved in powers of darkness. I think it was a major happening, their um, conviction and their confession in the city of Ephesus. They realized Paul's miracles are real. They are done in the name of Jesus. Our people don't really have any power over the darkness. People repenting, confessing, being delivered from the dark side, telling their secret magic spells. Okay, nobody would do that because once you told your magic spell, the power from it was gone. That was an ingrained belief in their hearts. For them to tell them was amazing. In fact, I read how Ephesus was famous for its magic spell parchments that they would, I don't know for sure how they would make copies of them or handwrite them all. People would travel far and wide to get the papers that came out of Ephesus telling you magic spells of how to have children, how to get rich. All of that was what they were giving up at this point in Ephesus because of this story. Bonfires sprung up with magic books being burnt. The value of the burning books, 50,000 pieces of silver, equivalent to 50,000 days wages for an average laborer. The value of the burning books spiritually, priceless. Priceless. Conversion for the lost. Cleansing for those who were in the church but hadn't set aside those dark practices. What a great thing was happening. Their hearts were changing. That was Paul's great hope. Look at verse 20 in chapter 19. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul's faithful teaching of God's word cleansed the dark hearts of the Ephesians. That's what God's word does. Look at Psalm 119 in your verse sheet. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Okay, but we see another example of the darkness in our next story. The Ephesians are being converted. So what's happening to the silver sails of idols? Silver pictures of the temple. Silver pictures of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. Sails are going down. And so Demetrius, 
gets all the silver workers worked up and enraged at Paul because of this. This is the second time we'll see Gentiles upset with Paul. And the reason being, uh, both cases, the first one being the Philippian fortune teller that Paul releases the demon from her. Now this time, both cases, the opposition is motivated by man's selfish desire for money. Their money was being infected. Now, Demetrius is too clever, so he adds three other reasons Paul must be stopped. So it didn't look like it was just about being fearful of losing their affluent lifestyle. He says three things. The danger of the trade of being a silversmith would lose its good name. The world-famous temple would lose its prestige. And the goddess would lose her divine majesty. So Demetrius covers their greed with a cloak of religiosity. And the silversmiths in his little shop buy it, hook, line, and sinker, and run into the streets and start yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then the whole city is in an uproar. It's mob hysteria. All the hearts of the people who had not been won over by the word of God, who were committed to their gods and their darkness and their evil, run into this this very theater. And they have no idea, most of them, why they're even there. They're just yelling and just in a confusion. Then they drag Paul's companions into the chaos and the confusion and continue shouting for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. Can you imagine? One person wrote this, In final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is shout itself hoarse. True. This shouting was the result when the Jews tried to put their spokesman, Alexander, forward, probably to let them know, hey, we're Jews, but we're not like this, these Christian Jews, Paul's, Paul's people. But when they saw a Jew period stand up there, the crowd gets worked up into a greater frenzy, and that's when they start their chanting. Because guess what? In the minds of a pagan, there's little difference between the Christian and the Jew because they both worship an invisible God, And they both are opposed to the gods of the Ephesians. So they didn't like either of them. And then in the midst of the two hours and the chanting and who knows how many thousands of people in there, we find that Paul wants to go there. Paul himself wants to go. He's thinking, great opportunity to debate them about the truth. Great opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so his foot's out the door, and he's walking, and the disciples stop him. And the Asiarchs, the prominent members in the city, they also send word, don't go. And Paul, the bold, aggressive, courageous leader of God, says, okay, You know why? Because Paul heeded the counsel of friends because it was motivated by their caring hearts and Paul cared about their hearts. He didn't ignore their feelings. He didn't ignore their fears. He submitted to their concerns. It lets us know as a leader, Paul was not a bully. He was not a dictator. He was all about the hearts of others. 
Eventually, Ephesus' leading citizen, we would call him the mayor of the city, makes four points to the disorderly people. He says, the whole world knows that we're the guardians of Artemis and nothing's ever going to change that. These companions of Paul are not really guilty. They didn't disturb our temple and our gods. The silversmiths should have gone through a legal system to bring their concerns. But here's the clincher. The mayor looks at this mob scene in this thing and says, We are all being in danger of being charged by Rome with civil disorder. The result could be our liberties being taken away. Everybody runs and goes home. It's all about them again. They don't want their liberties taken away. They go home. That's the last argument. And today, how many people are worshiping Artemis of the Ephesians? How many people are worshiping Jesus Christ? Millions. Millions. I think Luke lets us know this story to also know Paul cared about others. And they cared about him. When we focus on the conditions of others' hearts, we are a servant leader. Look what Paul wrote in Thessalonians. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Those were Paul's words and Paul's life. Okay, a servant leader looks forward. Paul made future plans that would bless others and glorify God. After this riot... Paul encouraged the churches, left them to encourage other churches. He goes to Greece, Macedonia, back to the coast of Asia, finally Miletus. He's heading to Jerusalem because the believers in Jerusalem are poor and they're persecuted. And Paul wants to bring the offering he's been collecting for Jerusalem from all the churches. Um, It would also accomplish unity For the Jews in Jerusalem who are really still sort of struggling with Gentiles in the church, when they see these Gentile churches send money to them in Jerusalem, what a great thing to realize we're many now spread out, but we're still one. We're one and we care about each other. Paul doesn't want to go before he blesses the Ephesians. Paul had so many friends in Ephesus, he could not say goodbye to them all. He wants to bless their future, so he invites the elders to come to him 30 miles away. And these are men he loves deeply in the Lord. These are men he trained and served alongside and walked alongside them, broke bread with them, invested in them for over two years. And when they heard that Paul wanted to see them in Miletus, I think they dropped everything they were doing and started the three-day journey to get to Paul. They knew Paul would bless them, and they were right. This is the only speech in the book of Acts addressed to a Christian audience in chapter 20. And since we're out of time, I'm just going to sum it up here. If you want to read it again, we can go back. When you first read this, did you notice how much Paul talked about himself? And you first read it and think, wow, Paul really likes himself. Paul's. Paul's really bragging about himself. And I would say, that's exactly right. That was the right thing for him to do because false teachers would come in and speak untruths about Paul. 
And people within their own church would rise up and try to ruin Paul's reputation. And the church and the truth of the gospel would be threatened. So Paul wants to remind them of his ministry among them for them to bless their future. Look at what Hebrews tells us about this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul reminded them of his ministry so his ministry would continue. Because who was the ministry about? It was God's ministry. He wanted God's ministry to continue. And he does three things. He speaks about the past, the present, and the future. First, he reminds them of everything he did among them. His hard work, humility, sacrifice, endurance, patience. Did you notice how many times Paul talks about his tears? His tears and his trials among them. And as those elders from Ephesus sit and listen, they realize he's passing that same baton onto us. That's our job, to be that kind of servant for our flock. He talks about the present. Paul knows that Jerusalem holds great afflictions for him, but he goes because the Spirit tells him to go. But he's also letting them know this so they know, you're not going to see my face again, so listen very carefully to everything I'm going to tell you. And he talks about the future. And we can sum up what he tells the Ephesians with two words, be alert. Be alert, be on guard, pay attention to your flock, care for them, because the wolf will come from within your church, from without your church, to twist the truth, to draw disciples out of your church, to follow them in their lies. Paul's specific instructions would protect and direct the future of the church. And then he says this to them after telling them all these things. But I commend you to God and his word. And they would be hopeful to think, you know, we won't have Paul, but we have God. And we have his word, and that's who Paul's commending to us. We can do it if we cling to his word and to God himself. And after he tells them all these things, the men of Ephesus, these leaders, they drop down on their knees. And they're weeping. And they pray, and they held Paul, and they kissed Paul, their friend, their mentor, their encourager, their servant leader. When we look beyond the present to help someone's future, we are a servant leader. And Paul's heart was beating strongly for all the believers in Ephesus, and it would continue to until the day Paul got to meet with Jesus himself in heaven the greatest servant leader of all. Look what Paul writes to the Ephesians after he's left them years later. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We are called to be God's servant leaders. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you that you give us everything we need.
to walk with you as your servants. May you bless us that we may glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.